0: When I was a kid, I I was uh, diagnosed with a disease that um, can be life-threatening, it's actually a very serious disease. It's called selective hearing. (laughs) Um, My mom said I had it bad, Um, and it was, uh, it's not funny, it was a very it's a very serious thing and, and I've actually it's genetic I've I've actually passed it on to my children oh my uh it's the weirdest thing it's it's like when when your parent gives you a command like go clean your room it, it just it sounds like the teacher from Charlie Brown you know the the or the muppets you know, the, you, know you can't make it out it just doesn't sound right, but when they say ice cream is on the table, my mom always said you'd run to the table like the devil was chasing you, you know, when there's ice cream there, but go clean your room just didn't, didn't quite register, and, and yes, my kids have it too, and, and I, I find myself saying a lot of times what my parents said to me is, I know you hear me, but are you listening? Right? There's a difference. In hearing and listening, there shouldn't be. I don't think they sound the same, kind of, but, but there is a difference between hearing and, and listening, isn't there? You, you can hear what's being said, but the question of listening is, are you actually doing it? What comes after you hear it? Do you actually follow through in obedience? We have seen in Saul's story so far, what we're getting to the end of, is that Saul has this uncanny ability to hear what's being said by God, but not actually listening to it. Meaning, he knows what he should do, and he even, in most cases, begins to do that thing. But then whenever times get hard, and when push comes to shove, he, in the end disobeys. He refuses to actually listen to what the Lord says. It, it would do us some good to just remember some of the things that has already happened to Saul, just kind of rehearsing some of the parts of his story that we know so far. Remember the reason that Saul is king. The whole reason that he even came to the throne was because the entire nation of Israel rejected Samuel as prophet. You remember this? Say so they come to Samuel and they're like, Look, we we're fine with you, I guess, but you know, we really don't like your sons, and we don't like this whole arrangement that we've got here, and we want a king like the rest of the nations have. And the problem is the way that the nation of Israel is functioning at that moment is that God puts the his words in the mouth of the prophet, and the prophet then turns. To judge the nation, leading them in righteousness, correcting them in sin, and the like. And so the nation of Israel coming to Samuel and saying, We're done with this, is, as God says to Samuel, a rejection of God Himself. Because they're really rejecting that whole setup God to the prophet, to the nation, God to the judge, to the nation. We reject that whole thing. We want a king like the rest of the nations have, so give us that. So they have rejected God over them, which then means that Saul is going to reign over them. So God gives them essentially what they asked for in Saul. And and Saul has his moments of sobriety, but then he goes off the rails. Stops listening to the Lord and kind of really does whatever he wants to. And and so much so that eventually he is told, as we read about even in this passage back in chapter 15, to go after the Amalekites and as the person, as the king who is bearing the weight of God's commandments and leading the nation in righteousness, to go after the Amalekites and judge them, which he was supposed to do. And instead of doing that, he decided, you know what, they got some really nice animals. And so we should just keep them... And, you know, their king, he's never done anything to me, I mean, in particular, so we'll just keep him too. And so eventually Saul reasons that it would be better to not do what the Lord has told him to do and listen instead to the voice of the people. And so Saul is judged for that, and the kingdom is ripped away from him, as Samuel recounts for him in our passage this morning. But then as a part of that, the kingdom being ripped away from him, God brings in another, David. David. A man after his own heart, he brings him into Saul's kingdom, endows him with his spirit, and he is charged eventually to lead God's people after Saul dies or leaves the throne. And so David comes into Saul's kingdom, and he is basically kind of playing the soothing instrument for him so that he can soothe Saul's nerves when he flies off in a tyrannical rage. And Saul gets jealous of David and so he starts to go after him and pursue him and David runs into the wilderness and in one particular instance David comes into an area where he meets some priests and they're serving in in the temple as all the priests in the city is called Nob and and it's a city filled with priests and the priests render him aid they give him bread because he's hungry when Saul finds out about this he does a, the craziest thing of all and he murders all the priests This is how crazy Saul has has gotten, how tyrannical he's gotten, how mad he's been driven, is that in his thirst to kill David, he has in the process murdered all of the priests of God there in the city of Nob. Now, in our passage this morning, I'm just going to be up front with you. There's some weird stuff, right? This passage Maybe some of you even, as we got into 1 Samuel, you looked ahead at 1 Samuel 28 and you thought, I can't wait till we get to that one because I'm anxious to hear what is going on here in this one. I'm going to try to give my best answers, responses to some of the questions you probably do have about what's going on here. But suffice it to say, Saul is getting close to the end of his story and we're told in this passage he's 24 hours from death, or, or maybe less than 24 hours from death. And he goes to the witch at Endor, and he, he tries to, to get a word from Samuel. But notice that there's two pieces of information that are given to us up front there in verse 3. Look with me there at, the, at verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So there's two necessary pieces of information that you have right at the beginning of this passage, and they are this. First, Samuel has already died. And we saw him die a few chapters ago. He's not dying again. He's not any more dead than he was back in the beginning. He is dead, and he has been dead for some time. But the author is reminding you, remember, Samuel's not in the picture. There's a second piece of information that you're given, and that is that at some point in the past, Saul had removed the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. These are people that communicate with the dead, that talk to the living on behalf of the dead, that communicate with spirits of some kind. And at some point in the history, we're not told when that was, Saul uh, Saul had taken the necromancers and mediums and kicked them out of the land. And my guess is that was while Samuel was still alive. So while Samuel probably was still alive, Saul had removed them from the land. And here's the thing, he was supposed to do that. That was the role of the king of Israel. There's a couple passages I want you to consider. First is Exodus 22:18 that says, You shall not permit a sorceress to live Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So, we have clear command in God's law. King, nation of Israel, you're supposed to drive out all the mediums and necromancers. They're supposed to be put out of the land. So Saul, at some point in the history probably again while Samuel was still alive, obeyed this command. And we're not told about when that was, but he obeyed it and he sent all of them out of the land. Now, immediately there becomes a problem because here comes the nation of the Philistines in their army and they've moved into the territory around the Israelites. And where do we find Saul in verses 4 and 5 but that he is afraid? And let me tell you, anytime time Saul is afraid... He does stupid things, all right? Period. This is probably common amongst most of us. Anytime we become afraid, we stop thinking about what God has commanded, and we only look at what's in front of our own nose, and Saul does the exact same thing. listen, Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 1 Samuel 17, 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, uh, they, this is Goliath, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. What caused them to not go into battle? What caused Saul not to go out into the valley of Elah to fight the Philistine? He was afraid. 18, 18, 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And then in 29, just a few verses later, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy Continue. Look, bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, Saul makes when he is afraid. And this is no different. He responds sinfully. But the problem only gets worse. Look at verse 6. It says... And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now, it's really important that you understand what Saul was after and what he did not get. The Lord will not answer him, but the author gives us how the Lord does not answer him. First, what does he say? It's by dreams he does not answer him. Now, dreams is normally the way that God communicates with kings, not just his kings either, any kings. You know some of these stories. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, has a dream. We got Abimelech in Egypt in the story of Abraham. We have Solomon is communicated a dream when he's asked, What is it you want? Ask me anything. And he asks for wisdom. Or Pharaoh is also communicated to by dreams. It's one of the ways that God communicates to kings. And Saul is being deprived of that form of communication right now. But it's not just that. The second, he says, is Urim. Now remember, this, we talked about this a few weeks ago. But this is that weird uh, set of stones that are on the priest's ephod. One is black and one is white. And there's some question as to how they would determine what the will of the Lord is, but it was something like either the rolling of a dice or the drawing of one of these stones. And if God was answering yes, it would come up Urim. And if he was answering no, it would come up Thumim, which is a darker colored stone. And so, but the point is that the Urim and Thumim stones were on the priest's ephod. And he wasn't answering Saul About attacking the Philistines by the priests, either. All right? Well, then finally, no prophets were around that the Lord was sending to tell him the message. And how would God communicate through his prophets? Well, he would take his words, God would literally take his words, and put them in the mouth of the prophet. And so the prophet would come to the king and would say, Thus saith the Lord, and would tell him what the Lord has spoken. That might be by a dream, that might be by Urim, but he would come to him and say, thus saith the Lord. Well, he stopped directly speaking to Saul that way. But why? Well, he stopped speaking to him by dreams because he's been rejected as king, right? Saul is no longer king. David has been anointed king. Saul has been told in no uncertain terms, I am rejecting you as king and your line. And so he's been rejected as king. Well, why isn't he speaking to him by Urim? Do you remember when Saul walked into the city of Nob and killed all the priests? That might have something to do with it, right? Not only that, but in, before that scene, David had taken the ephod from the priest and ran off with it. So there's that too. But Saul, because of his sin, had walked into the city and killed all the priests. Well, why isn't he speaking by the mouth of the prophet? Well, remember back in 1 Samuel 7 and 8 when the whole nation of Israel rejected the prophet leading them in Samuel and chose instead to have a king? Now, on top of that, Samuel has died? So there's a couple of things going on here, but all of which stems from Saul's direct sin or Israel as a nation's sin against God. And so all of a sudden now, God is not speaking to to Saul and he has become disturbed by it. He's not getting any answers. So what is he going to do? He cooks up a plan in which he consults with a witch. Look at verses 8 and to 10. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, "Divine me, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So Saul has cooked up this plan, and he's clearly ashamed of what he's doing because he takes off his kingly robes and puts on some robes to, disclose, to, to hide himself and he, to conceal his identity, and he, he goes in to see this witch. And the witch is suspicious about what Saul's plan is, is to communicate with the person that he names for her. And apparently, she's a witch with a conscience, which is very difficult to find, it turns out. But he goes to her and he says, No, no, I assure you, By the name of the living God, that no harm will come to you. The irony that Saul would have the nerve to go to a witch who is practicing necromancy, which is a sin that the Lord has said in his law he will punish by death and driving them out of the land. Saul has come into her and said, The Lord will not punish you. He has taken the name of the living God and said, By this name you will not die, even though the name of the living God has already said she would die. This is precisely what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. To come to someone who is practicing sin and say, Even though the Lord has said this is sin, it is okay. To associate the Lord's name with sin is precisely what that means. So here is the Lord's king complaining that the Lord isn't speaking to him, going to people who are worthy of the death penalty and saying, no, no, the Lord forgives you. The Lord will not put you to death. Irony here. Then verses 11 and 12. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So this passage provides a lot of fodder for conversation, right? (laughs) There's a lot of questions that come up right around these verses. One, so are witches real That's one question that might be bouncing around in your mind. Two, can people really conjure up the dead? Three, is she really bringing Samuel up here, or is this something else that we're looking at? Well, it's hard to answer those questions from two verses in Scripture, right? But here's what we can say at the very least. I think like today... There are likely, in the past, many people across the spectrum of necromancy, of chatting with the dead, of conjuring up spirits, all right? The vast majority of them are hucksters, right? They're the people that stand there and they go, uh, I see a pink, uh, it's like a square, it's like a, maybe a something, is it a baby blanket? It's a baby blanket, that's what I see. Yep, yep, that was my baby blanket. I had a pink baby blanket when I was a kid. Yep, yep, that's the one I see, and I got, right, that trick that they play, they're illusionists, they prey on your expectations, and they fool you. I don't know what kind of necromancer she was. I don't know if she's the kind that's got the guy with the organ in the back kind of playing the spooky music and trying to conjure up something and really trying to just fool you for money. I don't know. Or there's probably also a slim percentage of people who actually do commune with demonic spirits. And you should know they're out there and they really do speak to demonic spirits. And there is danger there. But the the point is, in God's word, he outlaws it all. It doesn't matter if it's the kind of like Wizard of Oz thing, ignore the man behind the curtain, faking everybody out for money, kind of necromancer, or if it's the kind who's actually communicating with demonic spirits, impersonating the dead, all of it is outlawed. It doesn't matter. You're not to investigate which one's which. All of it, which which is which, all of it is outlawed. And so, I don't know what kind of necromancer she was. But then the question is, can she really conjure up the dead? And I think what we can see from this text is that whatever she was used to happening in the past, when a client would come in and she would take their money and conjure up whatever, this wasn't what usually happened, right? She sees Samuel coming up from the earth and she screams. She's terrified. This is not what usually happens to her, right? And so she is, I mean, really afraid, and somehow in this process, she is actually able to identify that this is Saul, and Saul has deceived her. Now, I don't know if Samuel is telling her that this is Saul or how she understands that this is Saul or if we if there's just some details that we're not given. But the point is, she is knows that this is Saul and she feels like she's been deceived. Now, the, the question that people normally ask is, is she really conjuring up Samuel? Is this really what the, the prophet Samuel that we saw some chapters ago, who is now dead, And many people have answered that different ways. I think this is actually the spirit of Samuel, that God has given Samuel permission to come to the the witch at Endor and give Saul a message and communicate to him this way. So I think God is essentially sending Samuel to Saul to deliver this message. And you notice that, that she knows who it is, Somehow she connects the dots that it's Saul, and then she identifies the spirit that presumably Saul can't see. And so she knows that this is Samuel coming up, and Saul even asks her, w- w- what is he wearing? What does he look like? And she says, well, he's wearing this, he's wearing a robe. And, and Saul goes, yeah, well, that's him. I, I, I know who he is, Right. Now, if you're paying attention to the story so far, and you go all the way back to chapter 15, which Samuel is about to explain to Saul when Samuel rejected Saul as king, that was the last time we saw Samuel and Saul together in the same scene. How do you like that? Not only that, but Samuel delivers Saul a message, and he says to Saul, You have been rejected, and God is seeking out a king after his own heart. And I'm going to go find him. And when Samuel turns to leave, Saul reaches out and grabs that very same robe and it tears away. Right? The bottom of it tears. The hem of his garment. And Samuel turns around and he says, that's exactly what God's going to do to you. He's tearing the kingdom away from you. So his robe became a demonstration of God tearing the kingdom away. So when Samuel is identified, coming up from the earth by the witch, as one who is wearing a robe, you can almost hear the thoughts in Saul's head go, Do they have a little tear at the bottom? Because if so, I, I think I know... I think I know who that is. But the point is, he, he, he knows who this is, and he, he understands that this is Samuel communicating. Now, we're not told whether it is Samuel is talking directly to Saul or if all of the communication is going through this witch, but nevertheless, there is some communication that's had, and Samuel says, why are you disturbing? me?" Look at verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, notice he leaves out the priest. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Now, this is a very strange part of the text, because Samuel comes in and the first thing that he says is, Why have you disturbed me? Like a parent that the kid has woken up after their Sunday nap, to ask where their baseball glove is you know it's like the parent is like why on earth have you disturbed so it almost gives you the impression that Samuel has been sleeping until now and he's woken up from the best nap he's ever had by Saul who's wondering where his baseball glove is and he's like why have you disturbed me but really all that Samuel means to communicate is 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 really you've just disturbed me you've woken me up you've agitated me you've why are you pestering me, in other words, is all soul is, uh, Samuel is really saying. Some people will use that verse to argue that when we die, our soul goes to sleep until Jesus comes back. And that's not what the Bible is communicating here in any way. We don't get that kind of teaching. All that's meant to say here is you've disturbed me. You're pestering me, in other words. So there's very few conclusions about the afterlife that you can really make on such slim uh, passage in Scripture. And it certainly doesn't override what we learn from the rest of the Bible. But there's a couple things that I think we should probably say, is that first of all, the story is telling us what the woman saw, not necessarily making a comment on what the afterlife is like. You get that? What we're seeing here is the vision that the woman, the necromancer, is given. And she's hearing a message from Samuel. It's not necessarily making a comment at all about what the afterlife is like. What happens when we die, in other words. Further, Samuel's comment of saying, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up, is simply saying, why are you bothering me? So essentially, all we're looking at here is a woman who has a vision of Samuel coming up and the voice of Samuel speaking on his behalf to Saul and telling Saul a word essentially from the Lord that the Lord had originally given him back in chapter 15. And it's no new revelation. This is a revelation that Samuel had been given from the Lord many chapters ago that Samuel is now just reiterating to Saul. In reality, Saul should know that going and fighting the Philistines is what God has commanded his people and his king to do from the very beginning. There's no word that Saul actually needs here. He's supposed to understand full well that as king over God's people, you go and you fight the Philistines. What further revelation do you need? Further, if you're asking why God isn't communicating to you, haven't I already told you? So all the information that's being given to Saul is old news. Saul already knows this all too well, with one exception. And that is that Saul's going to die tomorrow. Obviously, Saul is distressed, but Samuel not only retells him what he already knows, but he tells him why he has become the Lord's enemy. Why is that? Look at verse 18. He says, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Saul was told, obviously, back in chapter 15, what he was to do as king. And it was the decree of God himself. And he chose not to do it. He was told to go up against Amalek to fight and he chose not to do it. Now the day has finally come, the 24 hour period of time where at the end of this day Saul is going to be killed that very day or tomorrow that is. And and it's because it's precisely because of his refusal to listen to the Lord. He knows he was he heard the Lord, but it's his refusal to listen to the Lord and now the Lord stops speaking to Saul. So Saul, way back in chapter 15 and even before, had stopped listening to the Lord. He heard what his commands were, he knew full well what they were, and he stopped listening altogether, he didn't obey. And now all of a sudden he's concerned because when he wasn't listening before it was fine, but now the Lord has stopped speaking. I think we as, even as children kind of feel this too, don't we? When a parent is saying something to us and then eventually the parent just stops speaking altogether. I notice my kids get really silent and they go, what, what well, why'd you, why'd you, why'd you stop? Why'd you stop telling me? Well, you stopped listening, right? So why wouldn't you expect me to stop speaking if you stopped listening? But nevertheless, here is Saul. He's frustrated over the fact that the Lord isn't speaking and not giving any thought to the fact that he stopped listening a long time ago. Now, as readers of the Bible, we're in a privileged position I think, much like the watcher of a movie, we have a position that the person in the story didn't have. We know some behind-the-scenes information. We know what the person should do and should not do. We know how they should act and how they shouldn't act. And there's many times where we read the stories in the Bible and we go, you moron, why are you doing that? I mean, come on. Isn't it obvious? You had the Lord descend from a cloud and speak to you or whatever, or you had a prophet tell you, thus saith the Lord, or you had this or you had that, or you had the Red Sea parted in front of you, and all of a sudden now you're doubting the words of God. you got a pillar of fire and a cloud going by. How is it that you can fail to listen to the Lord? I mean, come on. Surely it should be very easy for you. And I think when we're watching Saul enact this, we've got plenty of opportunities through the book of 1 Samuel to say to Saul, why are you doing this? It seems very obvious. Samuel is telling you, look, go and and kill the Amalekites. It's, It's not any harder than that. But then ask yourself, when it comes to obedience of clear commands in Scripture, Do we sometimes find it difficult? Jesus, in the New Testament, is talking to a group of would-be disciples, and He says this in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's hard to put discipleship any simpler than that, isn't it? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, And not do what I tell you. Am I really Lord? We read books, we listen to podcasts, and they're all dedicated on finding the Lord's will. And we think to ourselves, man, I really just wish I knew what the Lord's will was in this situation. And most of the time we ask that, we're looking for the Lord to give us some direction, and most of the direction that we're asking for are decisions that are both amoral. Option A, option B, neither one of them is sin. Lord, I wish I knew what your direction was for my life right now. As if we hope that the clouds just open up and a voice from the heavens says, Take the job. And we go, Lord, I I hear your will, and now I can do it. Meanwhile, we harbor bitterness toward family members. We hold on to money every month, refusing to give generously, as his word commands us to do. Or we lust after other people, or we slander other people, or we gossip about other people behind their back. And do you understand that when the Bible talks about listening to God, discerning His will, it's not intending for you to have some abundant clarity about two amoral decisions, choice A or choice B. It's about your relationship to sin. Saul is not condemned for having a question as to whether or not he should go up against the Philistines. Saul is condemned because he knew what he should do, and he chose instead to sin against God by not doing it. When it comes to discerning what the Lord's will is for your life, do you understand that he has put it here in his word, I want you to obey me. That's not to say that the Lord is unconcerned about whether you take the job or whether you don't. But it is to say, you won't know what that is. You might have a peace one way or another that the Lord might give you, or He may not. When it comes to discerning the Lord's will for your life, it's about obedience. So then the question becomes, if the Lord's will really is revealed to me in His Word, do I actually have a desire to obey it? It's easy to look at, I think, stories in Scripture and go, well, it's very clear what the Lord wants you to do. Why can't you do it? The Same reason that you can't. It turns out, no matter how much you see with your eyes, No matter how many times the water parts in front of you or the pillar of fire leads you or the cloud or the prophet speaks to you, no matter how many times Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, no matter how many times he calms the storm, no matter how many times he does those things in your life, you are unconvinced by what you see because our hearts are desperately wicked. We actually have the same struggle that Saul has in this passage and in every passage. We have the same bent toward disobedience. But Lord, I want to know what your will is. Do I take the job or do I not? And God is saying, I'd actually rather talk to you about your internet search history, I'd actually rather talk to you about your relationship with your dad. I get it. You want the clouds to part and you want a clear divine direction. But he has given you what you need for life and godliness. Right here in his word. Yep. And if you remain unconvinced by this, what would happen if the clouds parted and you got a word? You might be tempted to think it's just bad tacos, maybe or something else. Jesus was given an opportunity to sum up the commandments. And he said two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's a summary of the law. I wonder if we might be reading if, if somebody was reading the story of our life, if they might also be looking at things that we do and say, now why are you doing that? What are you thinking? Why are you treating that person that way? Didn't he tell you to love your neighbor as yourself? It seems very obvious. Can't you see the hatred that is sitting right in front of you, staring you in the face? How can you say you love God when you hate your brother or your sister? I think we could be hard on Saul, and maybe sometimes we're supposed to be. But don't you have to admit that Saul is acting out the human condition here. He's acting out the same things that you and I struggle with on a daily basis. Granted, it might be a slightly different here or there, but isn't it altogether the same? So, what is the result? Well, Saul gets this word from Samuel that he's gonna to die tomorrow, and this throws him into a great distress, and he is just fretting. And there's two words that are used as word plays in verses 20 to 25, or actually throughout this passage. There's a couple of words that you need to be aware of that are translated differently in the ESV, but are actually the same word in the original language. The first word is earth or ground, earth or ground, and it's used strategically four times in this passage. So the, the first wordplay, you can see, it, it comes from the voice of the, the, ne- or comes from the necromancer in verse 13, where she sees uh, Samuel coming up out of the earth. She sees something like a god coming up out of the earth. And so she co- sees Samuel coming up out of the earth, and the very next verse, Saul, you see, bows down to the earth. To pay homage to Samuel, who he recognizes is the more powerful person in the scene. So Samuel comes up out of the earth. Saul bows down to the earth. And then go down to verse 20. Saul is given his death sentence, and he falls down now at full length. Meaning his whole body is now face down on the earth. And what does it say? He also has the life out of him. He can't, it's like he has no strength within him. So Saul is pictured in this scene as a dead man. He is laying down on the earth, and he has no strength in him. And where is Samuel? He is risen up from the dead and has, is in a powerful position. And then finally what happens, as Saul is laying down on the earth, refusing to eat, there is the encouragement that comes to him to get up off the earth, and who does it come from? comes from the necromancer, the one who talks to the dead, and his friends who encouraged him to go there. And so this necromancer talks to Saul and encourages him to get up from the earth. And it says in Saul, there in verse 23, Saul rose up from the ground. So the, 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 the author is basically drenching this passage in irony. What began with Samuel being raised from the earth by the lady that talks to the dead ends with Saul being raised from the earth by the lady that talks to the dead. So essentially, the author is painting this picture of Saul as the real dead man in the scene. He's the real one that's the dead man walking, so to speak. But then there's the second word that comes up, which is the word listen or obey. And we find the reason that Saul is given this death sentence. And it comes from this word listen or obey. This word is Shema. You've probably heard this from Deuteronomy 6, which is what I just quoted a minute ago. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In verse 18, Saul is condemned. Why? It says for not obeying the same word the voice of the Lord but then in verse 21 the witch comes to Saul and reminds him twice that she has obeyed him there in verse 21 she says it twice that she has obeyed him and that she has listened to what you said to me so then the witch tries to get Saul to obey her by giving him some bread and getting up and eating and then in verse 23 it says Saul obeyed her and got up. So here's the picture that's being painted. Through this repetition of words. Now keep in mind, if you're reading this in the original language, you would hear this same sound coming up over and over and over again. So it draw your attention to these words that are being used. But essentially, the author is pouring on irony in this story that Saul is a dead man precisely because he will sooner listen to and obey a witch than he will the living God. At the witch's command, he'll listen. For some reason, when the Lord commands him, he won't. But we, what might be said of us? Might we be in some way like Saul? Well, I think whenever we look at what Saul is doing, I think most of us could say, yeah, I can see myself in that scenario. What we sometimes miss is that in God's kingdom, perfect obedience is required. Now that might shock us. To enter into God's kingdom, perfect obedience is required. Jesus himself said, as we were reminded this morning in Building Blocks, You must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus himself has said this to anyone who would come into the kingdom of heaven. But surely, all of us are sitting here going, I can kind of relate to Saul in some aspects at least, of my unwillingness to obey, of my unwillingness to love. So how can I possibly get, gain entrance into the kingdom of God if indeed perfect obedience is required? Here is David coming up after Saul. He's going to fail, spoiler alert. King after king is going to fail. How is it that I can actually come into God's kingdom? It is only by the righteous actions of Jesus Christ. It isn't by your obedience that you gain access to the kingdom of God, that you gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Righteousness was paid for by someone other than you. It's not that God looked at you and said, you know what? I know I said this whole bit about righteousness, but you're just so special. And you just have something about you that I can't, I just can't live without. So just, you know what? I'll just overlook it. Come on in. The reality of the gospel is that God has rightfully stored up wrath for humanity for sin against him, for a refusal not only to hear, but a refusal to listen. It's precisely because of our lack of obedience that we deserve an eternity in hell, and every single one of us is in that position. So the perfect obedience of Christ is is absolutely necessary. There's people out there that want to argue nowadays that Jesus, It's okay, I mean, Jesus was human just like the rest of us. He sinned like everyone else. But do you understand it fundamentally undermines the truth of the gospel. Christ lived a perfect life precisely because his righteousness that he earned, he was giving to you, his people. And it is only by his righteous living that you could gain access and entrance into the kingdom of God. If he doesn't live righteously, then not only does he deserve punishment, but we deserve punishment too. But then instead of keeping his righteous rewards for himself, he died instead, taking the punishment for your sin and gave you the righteous rewards that only he deserved. And he offers that to you by faith. Believing, confessing Him as Lord, repenting of your sin, admitting that you rely on Him above all else for entrance into the kingdom of heaven is the only way in. So understand that what's required of Saul in perfect obedience is going to be required of David and going to be required of so many others after him. Of everyone. It's not as though God is going to fudge the numbers when it comes to David. Or for you. Righteousness is still required for entrance into his kingdom. The question is, whose righteousness are you going to rely on? At some point, you're going to die. You can eat all the organic blueberries and chicken you want to, and you're still going to die. You can find someone who ate that diet and runs marathons every day that died today. At some point, you're going to die, and you're going to face A righteous judge, and then we're going to find out the question: Who is going to whose righteousness is going to stand for you? Is it going to be yours, or is it going to be Christ's? That's the question. It's the only question that matters. Whose righteousness is going to stand for you on judgment day? So now you have an option. Submit to Christ as Lord. Turn your life over to Him. Repent of sin. Trust that what He did for you on the cross is enough. Or trust in your own righteousness. Can you honestly stand before a righteous God and say, I know perfection is required and I have absolutely been able to maintain that"? I think that's foolishness the question is i know you hear it but are you listening you see there's also a group of people in here who have trusted christ and believe in him and yet every day continue to struggle and think at some point god's gotta stop loving me and you wallow in self-pity and shame and guilt and you confess your sin and you're like that's not enough I know he can't possibly forgive me when I've confessed sin. This also is a failure to trust in Christ. Yes. Instead of wallowing in the self pity and the shame, why not trust that his sacrifice really did pay for it? And it really is enough. I know you hear, but are you listening? Obedience is still required. But the difference is, in Christ, obedience is supplied. By the gift of His Spirit, He empowers you to obey, to follow, to not just hear, but listen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. For so many, myself included, it is difficult to see our sin before us and to trust that you really do love us and that you really do forgive us. I pray that you would give us help. It's even harder for us to see our own sin and then parent toward righteousness. <laughs> Holding our kids, even teaching our kids your righteous standard when we can't meet it ourselves. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us help. That you would convict us of sin, but you would lead us to righteousness. That you would help us demonstrate. The gospel before our own children, that we might not try to present to them some perfect model, but rather a person who is broken by sin and dependent on your mercy and grace for our inclusion in your kingdom. In the end, we are no better than Saul or any other center on the pages of Scripture. We fail your righteous standards every day. Give us the ability to trust in your mercy and your grace to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.